So for the last couple of months, our triad has been reading through Mark one chapter per week. When you read through Mark, particularly this deliberately, you pick up on a few themes that run throughout the text. One thing, one thing is that Mark is abrupt. He jumps from one thing to the next. He doesn't spend a lot of time on fluff. He gets right to the point. So I'll try to take his hand on that as we discuss the text tonight. You'll also see lots of references to Jesus being on the way. As he interacts with people through the text, he'll be on the way to somewhere through many of those uh, interactions. And I think we're to take that uh, to, to infer uh, this idea of Jesus' good news, his message uh, spreading through, uh, through the land, uh, and the universal nature of his good news. And you'll hear that one repeatedly tonight as he was on the way, as he was on the way. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on those two, though. The two connected themes that I'd like to spend time on tonight are more in the context of tonight, in the context of Good Friday. First, we'll look at how Mark takes a clear, persistent perspective on Jesus challenging people's understanding of God, the temple, tradition, and access to God's favor. After that, we'll look at a reoccurring confusion that happened as people encountered Jesus. Israel had an idea of what the Messiah would look like, and Jesus didn't fit that bill. These two themes are central to Mark's coverage of Jesus' life, and I think that we can track these ideas all the way to the cross. Jesus also uses these two ideas. Pardon me. Jesus also uses these two ideas to give a clear and at that time revolutionary perspective on what he intended for our lives. His stance toward corrupt religious authorities of the era and his posture toward his father during his time on earth give us some pretty clear advice on how to live our lives, on how to become more fully human just as we were intended. So on this first idea of Jesus challenging folks on their understanding of religion, the temple, and society, Kevin has explained to us over the last few weeks how Israel had intertwined politics and religion. The Pharisees, for instance, were an unofficial party who had been influential as a religious organization, but also had political clout for about 200 years before Jesus' time. Part of their influence was due to the respect paid to their expertise in Jewish, Jewish law and tradition, but in many circumstances, the Jews had devolved into groups of folks more interested in being more loyal than the next guy, keeping the law better than the next guy. After a while, the spirit of the law had been lost altogether. Their hearts were not inclined toward the original intent of the laws that had been given. They were just using the law to keep score and identify which Jew was the best at this grand game of gotcha. Jesus flies in the face of this idea from the beginning of our reading in Mark. Time after time, we see him associate with sinners and tax collectors, performing acts that would make him unclean under Jewish custom, and healing people regardless of their standing in society or commitment to the leaders of the day. From chapter 2, Jesus tells us, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is turning outsiders into insiders as insiders become outsiders. Later in Mark 2, people ask him, why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? 
and he references wedding guests fasting in the presence of the bridegroom and then said, no one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. So what does any of that mean? Old and new do not mix. What Jesus is doing will not fit the mold of their tradition. Then in the very next verse, we hear about the disciples picking grain as they were walking through the fields, and the Pharisees called them out. They shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. Jesus recounts a story about David eating the bread of the presence with his companions when they were hungry, and finishes by saying, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even on the Sabbath. Then he goes into the synagogue, and they follow him, still playing this game of gotcha. Jesus calls a man with a withered hand to himself, and then he asks the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do harm, to save a life, or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Herodians were followers of Herod, and Herod was an enemy of the Pharisees. While the Pharisees were well-respected, well-regarded within the society, they didn't actually have any official power, so they had to make an unlikely partnership in order to destroy Jesus. So we see insiders coming outside. Over and over in Mark, when Jesus heals a Jew, or heals in an area under heavy Jewish influence, he tells the person to remain quiet. Don't tell anybody what I've done for you. He knows that they aren't ready to understand the fullness of what's happening. They're still handcuffed in ancestral tradition and their own expectation of what the Messiah should be. But in Mark 5, you hear a different story. Jesus heals a man with a demon named Legion, for we are many. You remember that one? Mm -hmm. So he casts these demons out of this man and puts them into pigs that are nearby. And these 2,000 pigs run down the hill and into the sea and drown <clears throat> and die. So that's a remarkable story in itself. But here's the difference. They were raising pigs. Pigs are unclean. These people weren't Jews. So the advice is different. In verse 19, after healing him, Jesus says, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Outsiders come insiders. This theme continues throughout Mark in chapter 7. The Pharisees ridiculed the disciples for eating with unclean hands. And Jesus quotes Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He goes on to explain that it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. Rather, it's what comes out from that person. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, 
foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus is reorienting the way, or reorienting us away from the law itself as legalism and turning us toward the original intent of the law. Don't tell Jesus about your rules. He's more interested in your heart. This past week, Kevin preached on Palm Sunday about Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem where he cursed a fig tree, then cleanses the temple, flipping over tables, driving out those who had made his house a den of robbers. And the scripture goes immediately back to that withered tree, Mark's way of indicating with the fig tree what's coming for the temple. Then a few pages later in chapter 13, Jesus overtly predicts the destruction of the temple. If you see these great buildings, there will not be one left here, but there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What God had established with the temple had been twisted by misguided religious leaders. Access to the temple and to God's favor had become regulated by this religious ruling class. And from, but from here forward, access to God will be given to all through Christ's sacrifice. The conflict is quite clear between religious leaders and Jesus as he's arrested, convicted, and executed. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. The crowd shouts for his crucifixion. They taunt him to the moment of his death. But before I move into that second theme, I want to point out a stark illustration from Mark on this shift that I've been describing. In chapter 15, as Jesus dies on the cross, he utters a loud cry, takes his last breath, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. Verse 39 which we just heard. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So N.T. Wright sheds light on this idea pretty well, and I'll just read his text here. And now at last, not the high priest, not a leading rabbi, not even a loyal disciple, but a battle-hardened thug in Roman uniform, used to killing humans in the way one might kill flies, stands before this dying young Jew and says something which, with, with, says something which in Mark's mind, sends a signal to the whole world that the kingdom has indeed come, that a new age is being born, that God has done something, the news of which will spread around the globe. The Roman centurion becomes the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and mean it. In a world where Caesar unambiguously was hailed as the son of God, this Roman centurion looks at the dead Jesus and transfers that title to him. So once more, at the foot of the cross, we see an outsider become an insider. Now we'll shift to that last theme that I mentioned earlier. Many people in this time and place have been hoping for a Messiah to lead them triumphantly against Roman reign. So their picture of a savior looked a lot more like a political or military victor than a man humbly dying on a cross. But what Mark has to say about Jesus tells us not only about that death, but much more about his life and the implications for how we ought to live. We learn plenty about power, just not the kind that had been expected. 
in Mark 4, as we move back for a moment, Jesus is asleep in the stern of a boat that's filling with water, and his disciples wake him and say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he says, Peace, be still, and stop the storm. And he looks at them and says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Later in chapter 6, he feeds thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. A few verses later, he walks on water. A few more chapters, he'll feed thousands more with seven loaves and a few fish, and there seem to be healings around every corner. Jesus' power is remarkable, but his illustrations of sovereignty are more directed toward and through the natural world than through politics or military exercise. What would have been confounding at the time, most of his miracles are founded in kindness, mercy, and hospitality, all of which were based in love, not power. Mark 5, 24, or 25 to 34, Jesus is walking through a crowd on the way, as I mentioned earlier, to see a dying girl, and a woman who's had internal bleeding for 12 years sees him and thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. She touches his garments, stops bleeding, and Jesus appears not to even realize what's happened right away. In verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? She comes up scared half to death and tells him what she'd done. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That's freedom of disease through faith that just touching his clothes will heal you. In miracles like these, Jesus seems entirely disinterested in taking credit. His focus returns over and over again to our faith, to the faith of the subject of that healing. The theme's all over the gospel. This is obviously not just Mark and Matthew 17. Jesus healed a boy with a demon after the disciples had failed to. And they wondered why. In verse 20, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus wasn't talking about magic tricks. <clears throat> He's talking about fullness of human life. He's talking about what we were created to do, how we were intended to react and respond with the creation, interact with the creation, and he's showing us what he's reopening the door toward. We see the opposite in Mark 6. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, and everyone there is questioning. That guy's just a carpenter. I know his sister. You'd think on one page I'd be able to keep track of where I'm at. <laughs> what mighty works could he have done? Then in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their disbelief. We can get hung up here on whether he was actually encumbered or restrained by the lack of faith in that place, or whether he chose to restrain himself. But what's clear is that you can see a contrast between faith and the lack thereof. Now we move into, back into tonight's text in Mark 14. We see J Jesus illustrate this faith and his reliance on the Father as he prays in the garden. 14 verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. At this point, we're six verses away from Jesus introducing his betrayer, and he's still entirely committed to this as a human experience. To calling out to our Father in heaven for mercy, no exhibition of design power, only a call out to a Father. As we move into the trial, we say, see no defense, no attempt to exonerate himself, only an affirmation of who he is. The Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Then as we move up to Pilate, there's a strange contrast between Jesus and Barabbas, who are offered up to the crowd. This is the spot where I think the Jews found themselves at a juxtaposition of a person who somewhat fit their expectation versus the actual Messiah. In seeking a savior during an era of political oppression, Jews were expecting, or at least hoping for, a savior to come in great power to kick the door down on Rome and redeem them from their position of weakness. But that wasn't Jesus. His power instead was illustrated all of, over all of creation, but in a meek, humble manner that didn't fit this expectation. What Jews wanted was a revolutionary political or military powerhouse to break them out of their persecution. So here in front of Pilate and the crowd stands Barabbas. Mark tells us that Barabbas was a rebel who was imprisoned for murder during an insurrection. Matthew calls Barabbas a notorious prisoner. The text in John calls him a bandit or robber, depending on your translation, but that word is to describe insurrectionists or revolutionaries in this time. So Barabbas is at least a version of what they might have hoped for, albeit a failed one. He was a well-known revolutionary who wanted to defeat Rome on Roman terms, through violence and by power grab. I'm not implying that they thought Barabbas was the savior, but this conflict between what they expected and the reality of Jesus still tracks this late in the story. And they chose to send the genuine article to the cross, giving Jesus the end that Barabbas deserved so that we could reap the benefit due Jesus. This conflict obviously continues through the crucifixion. Jesus is mocked, beaten, and spit on, yet he doesn't lift a finger to defend himself. Hail, King of the Jews. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. In the minds of the Jews in attendance, this would be yet more proof that the Messiah who should be defeating the Romans couldn't possibly die at their hands. And once again, Jesus suffers through this as a human, unwilling even to take drugged wine to mitigate his pain. All we hear is another call to his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? I think Good Friday is often distilled down to Jesus died to save me from my sins. And that is absolutely correct. But what did he save you for in this life? His incarnation was not just a means to a crucifixion end. It was the way for Jesus to show us true humanity, to illustrate fullness of life in faith and reliance on God. Not in social status and perceived power or influence, 
He became human and experienced everything that this life can encompass in order to redeem us and to redeem our vocation as humans. What has been broken for thousands of years now has a path forward in grace. The cross is where the shift occurred, orienting humanity and the rest of creation toward its future and complete restoration. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.